Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. It's Monday, April 2nd, 2018, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Today, we have a big announcement. After 220 episodes, we are heading out on our own. We're going independent. We're really excited to make this move, and I think it will help us expand creatively, and it'll influence the kind of stories we tell because now it's only us that we have to worry about. We wouldn't have gotten this far without all of the support from Mother Jones over the past five years. I especially want to thank uh, Jeremy Shulman, who is our longtime editor, and Marianne, who's been uh, editing uh, our articles more recently. Uh, Mitch Grumman, who helped us behind the scenes all those years, and and Clara and Monica, the brilliant minds behind Mother Jones that really brought us there five years ago. Yeah, thank you for giving us a home, and we certainly couldn't have done any of this without you. For our listeners, you might not notice that much is changing, at least not immediately. We're still going to bring you the same weekly in-depth interviews with scientists, We're going to be adding also a new science in the news segment. And more than ever, though, we need your support and your reviews to help more people discover the show. So give us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts or support us on Patreon or just tell someone you like and know about the show. And if you follow us on social media, we're going to be counting down some of our favorite stories that we've written up on on Mother Jones and some of our favorite episodes from the from the past 220 as we celebrate this move into a new arena for us. I particularly liked your Hodor article. <laughs> I think if listeners don't know, you are a Game of Thrones fanatic and actually used a bit of neuroscience to explain why Hodor is so Hodor. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's so obvious why he's Hodor. <laughs> if you're a neuroscientist, if you're a neurologist, or at least you have some neurology, I don't have, I'm not a neurologist, but um, certainly he has a, a very particular type of Broca's aphasia. And I wrote about it for Mother Jones. Uh, but and it was really fun to do those kinds of articles. And and cer- certainly over the years, we've, we've written a lot of things um, for them that were influenced by the interviews that we did on the podcast. And um, I will miss doing those. Um, but at the same time, I'm excited uh, for us to go on our own. So on this week's show, we are sticking a, a little bit close to home uh, with with all uh, all my cards on the table. Today, this week's interview is someone that I went to grad school with and whose work I have long admired. We've had a couple of my grad student buddies on the show, Lucina Udine in the past. Uh, and this week, it'll be 
Daniel Krasik, who is an associate professor holding the Debbie and Jim Francis Chair in Behavioral and Brain Sciences at the University of Texas at Dallas. He and I actually uh, worked a little bit closely together on some reasoning studies when I was a grad student, and he's taken that work even further. He studies metaphor and analogies and how it is that we reason. Um, He's also the acting deputy director of the Center for Brain Health. But some of his most interesting work, I mean, beyond the stuff, I'm not like analogy and metaphor isn't interesting. It's fascinating. But he's also been really good at getting grants from the Department of Defense. Uh, And in fact, he's been studying how uh, veterans can be rehabilitated after traumatic brain injuries with respect to their reasoning skills. And in particular, he's used some interventions that include virtual reality. Super cool work. Wow, you can actually use virtual reality, which like on some level, I think is a bit of a fad. You can actually use it as a therapeutic element to potentially... Uh, change how veterans feel. Or, yeah, because I, I mean, think? imagine, imagine, think about what the problems are if you have post-traumatic stress disorder, right? You're going, you're reliving these memories, and you're having this huge emotional reaction to some kind of traumatic event. Now, what if you could do that reliving in a space that is under your control, uh, that is more, you know, sort of safe uh, than just being at the mercy of your own memories or at the context, the environment around you. Like, for example, for a lot of these veterans, uh, loud noises can be very startling and, and sort of, you know, trigger an episode. Um, so what if you could go into a virtual reality environment where you know when that lo- loud noise is coming or, you know, you have some control over, you know, that environment and therefore you can retrain your brain not to fear uh, a stimulus that isn't harmful to you uh, by disassociating it from the e- emotional experience. And in a time when we seem to have more needs for veteran health services than ever before, this sounds fascinating. Yep, particularly this week, it seems apropos. So I wanted to give Dan uh, a mouthpiece for his work so that he can tell us about all the important things that he's doing. So let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with Dan Krasik. Dan Krasik, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you. It's great to be here. So I want to start by asking you the question that you start out in your book, uh, explaining how difficult it is to answer. <laughs> so my apologies. Um, but you study reasoning. And you know what does that mean? Yeah, that's, that's a really key question for the field. Um, I think when we, in most areas of science, we, we have a very well-defined, well-operationalized question about the world. And then we try to you know, make progress dealing with the human mind and its complexity and how it solves that. So something like memory, it has become sort of a more manageable question maybe because you can take two items, you see how people associate them and whether they recall something, that's that's pretty clear to define out in the world. Now, of course, in the brain, as you know, it's very complex and you get into medial temporal lobe structures and all the neurophysiology of memory. I think for reasoning, what's what makes it challenging is our definitions of what we consider to be reasoning behavior are not as clear cut, and reasoning has flexibility out in the world. So, I really went with a definition that I thought applied in a broad sense, um, and that has really three features. So, one is that reasoning takes several inputs and uh, transforms it into one single output. And that could be a thought, it could be an action, or it could be some kind of decision. 
there's not one way to do it. And I think it involves multiple processes. So if it's a simple input-output kind of situation for the brain, that can be a reflex, it can be a memory. If you're simply rec- recalling a um, an intact memory, that's more of an input-output problem. Reasoning has uh, multiple stages. So you move through um, from one transformation to another until you consider the process finished with that output. And then thirdly, uh, I think an important component is the novelty or synthesis. So it has to take either old information and recombine it into some novel product, or it can sometimes take new and old information or new elements of information for a transformation. I think those three features, at least for the scientific study of reasoning, make a lot of sense. Yeah, so one of the things I always struggle with when interpreting neuroimaging studies of reasoning is, you know, how how can we sort of make it more likely that people are using the same strategy to come to an, an outcome? Because, you know, in most reasoning problems, there are several steps that you have to follow. You know, there might be multiple paths to a solution. And in neuroimaging, we kind of want to make sure that we're seeing the same thing uh, across many subjects. So how do you tackle that problem in your neuroimaging studies? In the neuroimaging work, that, that's a really good point. So you'll notice across the literature, for example, in causal reasoning, where you're trying to basically isolate causes and effects, you know, we do this all over the place in our lives in terms of, if you think of intelligence analytics, how did 9-11 happen? What caused it? Very complex problem. Whole intelligence agencies working together come up with different answers on that. So when you, when you do neuroimaging, and you're focused on the physiology behind it, you really have to narrow down the question to very basic elements. So like in causal reasoning, it would be studies like uh, the collision of different billiard ball images and whether or not the characteristics of speed and timing give you a causal feeling. So that's a very different kind of question. Um, Take an example from analogical reasoning, which is something we both studied Um, I think the fruit fly, so to speak, of neuroimaging for analogies is four-term analogies. A is to B, as C is to D, and they share some kind of relational correspondence. And that's definitely different than what we see out in the world, where we can make wartime analogies that Iraq is like Vietnam, or we can make economic analogies where the financial crisis was somehow like the Great Depression. Those are much more relationally complicated And to your point, different people will gravitate toward different aspects of it. So we have to basically take those tasks or those types of reasoning and operationalize them to study them in a a simpler format. At that point, we can start to understand what the brain activity may be telling us. So in the case of four-term analogies, that's even too complex for the brain to give you a very meaningful answer. You basically want to break that down further to how we encode a relation or discover a relation between, say, a bird and a nest, and then how we might infer that um, a bear lives in a cave just like a bird lives in a nest. And so the inference process could be broken down as well. So I think that's the challenge. We have to get these very narrowed down kinds of tasks and then try to extrapolate upward to real reasoning out in the world is probably somewhat like this. 
So I think for a lot of people, this kind of high level reasoning is sort of the pinnacle of human evolution in terms of the brain. You know, it's 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 largely prefrontal cortex mediated, we know, which is one of the last structures uh, to sort of have this big proliferation during evolution. And it seems like something that we can do that other animals can't. And yet every time we try to, you know, take a, a task and claim that it's human only, there's some clever behavioral uh, ecologist or, you know, some other sort of comparative psychologist who figures out a way to show an, an analog in another species. So what I was going to what I what I'm trying to get at is, is to what extent uh, are these kinds of processes uniquely human or even related to conscious reasoning versus, you know, sort of the kind of unconscious or implicit work that uh, might happen outside of our awareness. A lot of interesting thoughts there. So let, let me first start with one of the things you'd said about viewing um, re human reasoning as kind of an evolutionary pinnacle. Um, I found with the more I read on comparative studies and other species, it's pretty tricky to maintain that kind of conclusion because there's so many different organisms that are you know really geared toward particular environments and so a reasoning problem for a lion pride for example is to work together to subdue incredibly dangerous prey animals so when humans get together and would try something like that we'd have to rely on tools we don't have the speed you know there's a lot of challenges we wouldn't look so good compared to a hunting lion pride so i try to keep that in mind I think what's quite unique about human reasoning is actually not just the, the fact that we have large frontal lobes. I think that gives us a workspace for our cognition that's maybe larger than other species, but that's not infinite in humans. And the way we expand on that workspace is by our previous memories. So I think one of our maybe defining features is the fact that we have tremendous memory systems and we can language code a lot of our memories. We can recall whole chains of episodes. And that's maybe the the key thing for humans. Um, if other primates had similar richness of their prior memories, we would probably expect them to be able to use analogies or maybe approach some kind of symbolic uh, representation like, you know, would a chimpanzee ever do cave art? We know early hominids did that. The answer is no. We just don't see chimps do that. Something about the way we represent the world enables us to take a tool and actually re-represent it in the form of art. So I think maybe our memories are richer in some ways, and maybe language has something to do with that. So we're very symbolic. And I don't think it's just processing power of the frontal lobes. I think it's actually our general workspace. And then we bring so many rich representations into that workspace. So one of the topics I wanted to turn to you is your work on uh, patients in whom some of these processes have gone awry. So in particular, a lot of your recent work has been on, on people with traumatic brain injury. Um, so can you first describe a little bit about the kinds of patients that you study? Um, and then we can talk about what you do. Sure. So brain injuries turn out to be a tremendously common cause of death and disability across the population. So it's an important health cause, first of all. And what happens in a brain injury, uh, we now use the term concussion and traumatic brain injury synonymously. And uh, it's basically just a blow to the head, and it can cause basically damage to the cortex. So the brain bruises as it 
bashes up against the skull. And you also will find that the white matter or the connections of the brain can become uh, damaged through torsion and different forces. And so it's it's really compromising the brain's ability to um, process information, but also the, its ability to connect. And so what happens for such a person, if you've had, can, a, it can be a single concussion, it can be multiple concussions, and different people respond differently to different kinds of events, um, you can find symptoms such as dizziness and headaches, slowness of, of thought or disorientation. And many people will recover a lot of those abilities. So that's one of the nice things about our brains is they, they are quite resilient. Many people who have, have concussions uh, recover to, to basically normal levels of functioning. The group I study is about 15 to 20% of people will continue to have cognitive difficulties months to years after their concussion. So these are sort of unlucky people where just the organic healing hasn't done the job. And so what we try to do is understand, first of all, what might be going wrong here? What cognitive deficits are they experiencing? And then also, what can we do about it? Is there, is there a way to rehabilitate memory and attention you know, through, through behavioral interventions? So what are some of these behavioral interventions that you use? I did a study with colleagues at UT Dallas on a strategy-based reasoning uh, training. It's um, geared toward this exact population, and, and it's essentially a, a case where you try to give people different ways to process information. So, for example, early on in the process, you try to emphasize blocking or inhibition. So, you know, attend to you know, focus basically and block out distractors. And then once people start to master that skill, you use some of these principles of memory to try to better connect information, incoming information to older information, encourage people to generate novel inferences, um, organize their information in an effective way. And so these are all ways that you can try to approach the world in order to better organize it within your brain. And, you know, it's, it's up for debate as to how much actual brain recovery someone's doing in those cases. They may just simply have a slower um, level of connectivity. For example, if they have white matter injuries, it's, it's not something where we can regrow those connections. But what we can do is uh, emphasize that maybe you can make better use of your existing brain power. And if you're more efficient with how you encode memories or pay better attention in a sense, perhaps you can make progress on that. So, you know, one of the techniques that you use is virtual reality. And um, so I'd like you to sort of tell us a little bit about, you know, why virtual reality and what kinds of changes do you see after, you know, a series of sessions with, with someone who's sort of going through a training program? Yeah, this is an ongoing study. It's Department of Defense funded. And why we went with virtual reality is pretty simple. So we do a lot of neuroimaging in my lab, and we do a lot of neuropsychological tests in which you're asking people to remember words or um, sequences. And if you ask someone who really has a brain injury, um, you know, what's your problem? What, what are you experiencing that's challenging, they won't tell you um, there's not enough prefrontal activation for me. And they certainly won't say, you know, I wish I could do the, the trails test faster 
what they'll tend to tell you is I have a difficult time scheduling my life. I have a hard time making it to appointments. I, I forget things when I'm shopping. And so it often boils down to some kind of a applied memory impairment or a management of information. And in order to do the best job for these individuals, we really felt we could take advantage of, you know, daily life is when things get complicated. This is where someone actually experiences their problems. So why not use a virtual environment to try to simulate that complexity for the person and see how they respond to that challenge? So in this work, we have um, essentially tried to rebuild complicated environments. And so we, we organized it around packing for a trip and taking a trip and visiting museums. And so in those environments, you would have to strategically pack for a trip. And we would tell the person, it's going to snow. So they have to make sure they bring cold weather gear. Uh, or we switch it up and tell them they have to pack for a hot vacation. And so it's a strategic memory problem. They're managing items within a bedroom and putting them into a suitcase. And that's very hard to do in a lab. It's very easy to do in virtual and uh, you can get very clear quantitative measures. And so we have a really nice subway. If you've done a you know trip in a foreign city and had to deal with transit, that's a big executive function reasoning kind of problem. And then lastly, we try to have them tackle museums where they have to learn different uh, information from exhibits. So we think virtual tools could be a way of addressing these real life challenges. And that's that's been one of the really big problems with a lot of brain training applications, you know, this problem of transferring from the video game or, or you know, the virtual reality to real life. And, and in most cases, I would say, um, those kinds of applications have failed to show transfer that, you know, the person gets very good at the video game, but that doesn't help them in the grocery store to remember what it is they need to buy for dinner. Are you finding something different in this population with this particular way of applying it? Yeah, I the uh, transfer problem is is becoming a, a common challenge to um, these type of electronic interventions. And I, I appreciate what that is. So, so what oftentimes people will do is try to tackle something from a construct level. So something like working memory. We're going to ask you to maintain more and more letters and in theory, you'll be able to build your management of incoming information. And people get better at that, right? They, they can train up on that electronic task. And then they go out in the world and they have to remember, oh, wait a minute, I was supposed to pick up um, you know, this particular thing at the grocery store. And then I had to get over here. And, and in some sense, what they're doing in, in the real world is dealing with a lot of unexpected challenges. So I think that's maybe why people don't see letter management or digit management transfer to the grocery store as you're just dealing with a much less controlled environment and you're much more goal-based for abstract content in those cases. And so there's no easy answer to this. The brain just simply doesn't um, get better broadly because you've exercised it in one specific way. Um, so what we've tried to do with building our software with one of our partners that build a lot of uh, tools for the DOD is to be diverse about it. So we make part of the task to be a little bit goal-directed with some 
fluidity. It's a little bit like we talked about with the definition of reasoning. You can successfully pack for a cold weather trip by taking you know, a variety of clothing. It doesn't have to be one specific item all the time. So we're hoping, and this is really too early to tell, we're in the midst of the um, research now, but what we're hoping that this will do is enable people to um, grapple with complexity, the kind of complexity they see out in the real world. And perhaps if we uh, can train them up on specific skills in the virtual space, we'll have a better shot of them finding this useful in their daily lives. That's the goal of the project. So uh, as you mentioned, you know, it's hard to sort of completely regrow white matter tracks, but are you seeing any neuroanatomical measures or or functional measures of change uh, after a certain training protocol? We are. So that this is too early to tell with the virtual work, but for the other reasoning training uh, study we talked about with strate- strategies, so it's tr- strategic memory advanced reasoning training or SMART as the acronym. And that was that's a a clinical um, guided intervention. So it was all in with real individuals and it was done in small groups. That's a really uh, fascinating project because it was very practical in the sense of it was processing, you know, stories and real information from your life. But we did a lot of neuroimaging with that population. And I think the most interesting findings were from what's known as a resting state functional MRI, in which you can take a resting state scan of the brain before and after the training. And you can basically see how um, different regions become correlated or how they're connected. And so we saw a lot of differences that that changed after the training. And they were mostly frontal lobe driven kinds of areas. So we, we saw some changes in thickness within the prefrontal cortex and we saw some greater connectivity levels in some of the networks that are related to um, functions like attention and focus. So that was really exciting because it was a biological kind of measure that's related to psychological training. And so we start to see that convergence of behavior and brain-based measures, which is what we're all looking for. Yeah. And then, you know, presumably, as you mentioned, if the prefrontal cortex really is about sort of this kind of workspace idea, you know, if you're if you're if you're making your your desk uh, more efficient uh, and your workspace better, then then presumably you will find transfer uh, to to other tasks, although that still you know remains the holy grail. Um, I wanted to turn to another uh, application that you've that you've used in your lab of this kind of virtual reality training, and, and that's this uh, teen socialization uh, project. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. So this was one of the first projects I became involved with when I moved to UT Dallas. And um, it was relatively novel in that what we're looking at is individuals on the autism spectrum. And they were probably, you know, in the range of 15 years old to, to early 20s. Not a really popular group for a lot of autism research. So I think over the years, people have focused very much on genetic kinds of markers for autism and really looking at a very young age. And what my colleagues and I were seeing that was missing from the autism field was, you know, a lot of people grow up with autism. They may be on the mild end of the spectrum, meaning they don't really have language deficits so much but those individuals will have difficulties taking the perspective of other people. They'll sometimes have difficulties reading others' 
emotional um, expressions, particularly negative emotional expressions. And so if you're confusing anger with sadness or sadness with anger, you can make some huge errors socially. And when you go out in the world um, as, a, as a young person with autism that's, that's on that spectrum, even if you're on the more mild end, it's actually really hard to live independently sometimes because you have to go on job interviews. You have to uh, try to meet new friends. You have to negotiate a lease with a landlord and you have to try dating, right? These are all very, very difficult problems to uh, solve if you have um, challenges with understanding what other people are thinking or reading their social cues. So that's where a virtual uh, intervention can become very helpful. And so uh, this was originally done in, in a platform called Second Life, which is one of these large online kind of games. And it's a social experience more than a game. There's not like a point system for it. And so what you could do in that in that situation is build these environments that would enable people to practice uh, going on a job interview. And the avatars are run by people. And I think that's really key to this. So when you go into that space, you know you're interacting with other human beings. It's not AI. And so you take it really seriously. And the first time I went into that kind of environment, I was a little self-conscious, just like I would be kind of entering a group, a new group situation out in the real world. You know, you sort of feel that social sense of I have to meet the people and figure them out. And so it's enabled us to, to do studies with young adults and, and teens with either Asperger's disorder or mild autism spectrum disorders, and basically allow them to train their social skills. And maybe they don't always have the same emotional recognition as others, but we think that's a trainable skill. And so we've seen uh, some benefits there. We talk maybe about transfer effects for executive functions moving into shopping or scheduling or travel. In these instances, the transfer effects would be uh, we actually saw some improvements on theory of mind kind of tests or perspective taking tests that are from neuropsychology. Um, so kind of a broader overall improvement. And it was really from those simulations they could do in virtual space. So when these students then come out of this training program, have they reported back in terms of what th what kinds of improvements they see practically in their lives? They have. So we've had some really, uh, I think, nice stories come out of this work. So some of the the features of someone who has autism or Asperger's disorder is is a lot of social anxiety and a lot of confusion. And so there's there tends to be that social interactions are not rewarding for those people. And um, really, once they started in the virtual uh, environment, they. I think they gained a feeling of self-efficacy because they were starting to have maybe not positive experiences, but a clinician could work with them, sort of replay the interaction and, and give them tips and pointers on, you know, you did this really well, but look how that might've made this other person feel. And so the playback capability of the technology was really effective. In the real world, you have a social interaction go poorly and you just ruminate about it later. And there's really no way to actually examine what had gone on. And so the VR tools enabled this population to get more of a sense of insight into their own behavior. And just on the positive side, 
Um, I think we heard from a lot of parents who were just saying, wow, this, you know, they've, my son or daughter has never, uh, you know, been happier and they're, they're engaging with new people. One of my favorite stories was one of our participants was in college and he was actually doing a lot better in his coursework, not because he'd learned new information, but rather he could better understand what the professor wanted. So just through that social capability, he could do better in school because he could now figure out what he was supposed to study. And that had been a very hard challenge for him before. Yeah, I imagine this kind of application then could be used in a lot of different sort of clinical psychology settings where, you know, it's one thing to go and spend an hour in a therapist's office telling the therapist what you think happened. <laughs> it's a whole other thing to have a therapist kind of watch you actually interact. Um, you know, I can imagine this would be the case like for couples therapy or, you know, many other ways in which, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy for people who have phobias or depression or anxiety, um, you know, where the person can sort of walk you through. Uh, your behavioral patterns and and demonstrate you know and kind of shape behavior much like you know a, a kind of coach would whether it's in music or in, in some kind of sport. We've actually used that term before in some of these cases. Like there's a coach who's kind of the person's ally, and you can you know walk back through the interaction. Um, I think this this research project has some of the most potential for you know, becoming useful out in the real world because we've already moved that project um, away from purely autism and, and looking now more at teens with social anxiety uh, for any cause. You know, it doesn't even have to be a clinical disorder. It can just simply be teens tend to be anxious socially, and there's a lot of conditions that that make sense for. And so why not use this as a tool to try to build up social skills so that in the real world, when you have to do some some type of negotiation or simply meet new people, you now have um, this history where you were able to simulate that in a game-like environment. You were able to have a coach basically run you through, here's what you might say, and you know, did you notice this that happened well? Or maybe you could try to work on this other aspect. And so it, I think it offers a lot of insight to something that we often can't really appreciate because we can't see ourselves through other people's eyes. So this technique um, offers maybe a little bit more of a, a different perspective on your own uh, social abilities. Um, another thing I, I wanted to point out, um, I feel like I'm running kind of long on this answer. And that's actually one of the things that we work on in that, that program is turn-taking within conversations. So that's definitely a learnable skill that you can start to become more targeted and uh, so I think of that like in media training. If you've ever uh, done media training for for a business application, it's very much um, you know target your answers. Yeah, absolutely. Make them thirty seconds. But luckily, that's not our podcast. <laughs> We're long Fortunately, right, right. I'd be really <laughs> dominating uh, needlessly. I, I but my awareness is there. No, not at all. That's that. That's what makes my job easy. Uh, that's why I pick good guests. Um, I, there was one more arm of your research that I wanted to touch on uh, briefly because I don't know how far along you are in terms of getting this research going. But um, you know, there's there's some mention of using hormone manipulations to uh, you know look at the way that people trust uh, each other, and and in particular that neuroimaging measure, measures. So um, you talk about you know using va oxytocin or vasopressin uh, intranasally uh, to change people's behavior. Tell, tell us a little bit about what that's all about. 
Yeah, this is a, a really fascinating area um, with hormones. So um, this is, again, related to social behavior. It seems like our um, something about the way we behave with others is, is governed a lot by our hormones. And so oxytocin has emerged as people associate it with trustworthiness. And there were a lot of early studies where um, what you can do is basically give someone a nasal spray it's just a bottle and it will have synthetic oxytocin in it. And, and they, they inhale this like a, um, like what you might do for cold symptoms and for nasal congestion. And what that does is basically elevate the level of oxytocin within the brain for a, about an hour afterward. And it takes a little while for the levels to uptake. Um, and there's been a lot of scientific debate about how effective this might be um, a lot of the research is, is suggesting maybe not enough of the hormone gets uptaken or, or not enough is used. This is relatively low dosage. So these are actually really safe studies to do in neuroscience because someone won't really even know they're, they're getting oxytocin. So you run these with a placebo condition where it's just saline solution. And the type of work we, we've been doing involves both um, synthetic oxytocin and synthetic vasopressin. And what vasopressin is known for is, is being a vasodilator, but it also has seemingly some social effects. They're really very subtle and hard to grapple with. And there's a lot of open scientific questions on this. Um, in our particular case, we were investigating the trustworthiness idea with um, oxytocin. So we, we looked at whether or not people had elevated trust for for basically neutral face strangers, meaning people aren't making facial expressions. It's a neutral image of a face. And do they tend to feel that person was more trustworthy when they had that oxytocin elevation over the other conditions? And our hypothesis for vasopressin is that maybe there would be a greater level of aggressiveness toward others. There's some uh, animal research that suggests that might be the case. And so... Um, I think this is one of those areas where straightforward answers are not obvious. Um, so quite the reverse happened. Um, this is a paper that's in, in uh, preparation now. Um, actually, we found that uh, these are all in, all males. Um, so that sort of all men who are doing the, um, are the subjects in the study. And they, they actually had lower trustworthy ratings for the faces. And, um, that was really unexpected. Uh, if anything, vasopressin seemed to change uh, more in the uh, the trust space. And then uh, dominance ratings seemed to be adjusted. So you would rate how dominant another face looked on oxytocin, and that seemed to, to actually increase. So pretty unintuitive results for trustworthiness. And I think that just suggests a lot of these socially related hormones or hormones that will have some kind of an effect on our on our feelings about others have to do with who those others are. So how we react to strangers is probably quite different than how we react to known others. Um, a lot of the work in this field is suggesting we will tend to trust others more with oxytocin if we, if we see them as in-group members. If they're somehow similar to us, that elevates trust. But if they're seen as different from us, we might get even more 
uh, hostile or we might feel less um, affiliated with them. So it's really complex um, work, but I think it has a, a big future because it really does modulate brain regions very effectively. So even though someone doesn't feel more trust uh, toward others, um, and they might not even rate uh, others differently, you can see the elevation or suppression of brain regions very effectively within when you pair this with something like functional neuroimaging. Hmm. I was hoping that, you know, with your affiliations with the Department of Defense, we could just like figure out a way to, you know, pipe this into the Congress or the White House and right. solve a lot of problems. But um, yes, that idea has like been it... <laughs> talked about before. Yes. Uh, yeah. It sounds like that might not, it could backfire. It could actually <laughs> elevate our partisan spirit because you might agree more with your little in group and become more polarized against anyone you see as an enemy. So um, no simple answers there. So one last thought. With so many technological changes going on right now and in the forefront, what what do you see as the future of how we might use technology to hopefully improve our reasoning skills? Well, I think the most interesting technology right now is just Google searches. And if you have a something like an echo dot you can you can use alexa to ask questions and what that gives you is just a very quick answer to you know some idea you have and it actually i think really facilitates um quickly filling in gaps about your knowledge and so um that information delivery i think is maybe one of the most exciting possibilities you know there was a time not too long ago when you would be chatting with someone and they bring up a movie and you, you're trying to think of who the actor was and maybe you forgot the name of it. And if you didn't jointly come up with the, the memory, you couldn't retrieve it, you were just out of luck and you sort of had to just drop that and move on. And nowadays we can just simply, I mean, it's amazing how, how search has become so efficient with just a few words. Um, Google searches can target really just what you were thinking of or something that's incredibly useful to know about. So I think for improving our reasoning, we can expect just a more efficient delivery of more information um, in a timely fashion. And that would have huge benefits for things like how we um, analyze our investments or uh, solve complex problems in, in world affairs, things where information timing is so important. And so that's, I'm optimistic about that. I think that's where technology, rather than brain chips or implants that are just going to somehow make us smarter, that's a really kind of science fiction idea right now. Um, I personally think like just the availability of quick targeted searches that can just give us more of what we need when we need it is, is really going to help us in our daily lives. Hmm. It's really interesting because a lot of people are blaming Google for people's inability to remember things. And, you know, there is there is some evidence that Google uh, has made it more difficult for us to remember the content, but more easy, easier for us to remember the search strategy, <laughs> just as you're talking about. And, and maybe that's a more important skill um, as humanity moves forward. I guess it's a trade-off. We're sort of offloading some of our memory to electronic form. And as long as we can count on it being there, I, I, that may be okay. But a fair point. There's always a trade-off uh, in everything. So just want to let our listeners know that Dan's new book, Reasoning, The Neuroscience of How We Think, is now available at booksellers everywhere. Dan Krasik, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. Thank you, Andre.
I think the VR stuff is fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. It shows it's basically like cognitive behavioral therapy on steroids in a lot of ways for these veterans. And I know there's a bunch of research groups looking into this area. So it's not just confined to uh, Dan's work here. But does it scale? Does it scale to actually meet the need that is out there? Well, last night I saw Ready Player One, and it reminded me of... No spoilers. (laughs) Oh, oh, you know what I feel like about spoilers. I don't spoil anything. But um, in any case, uh, I saw Ready Player One, which is, in case you don't know, a movie based on a novel by Ernest Cline, uh, which I thought was a lot of fun, about a future in which people spend most of their time in virtual reality. And, you know, I'm not saying that we are there uh, in the next few years, but, you know, I think that is something that there are a lot of people who are working on making this technology ubiquitous. And yes, there are a lot of problems that we need to solve with VR, you know, in terms of making sure that we are not nauseated. (laughs) Um, As, uh, but, you know, I think... I think that they're that you know it's only going to become more uh more accessible and more more common more easy to get easier to get and so now I think is the time to do the research to find out what kinds of interventions might be effective so that once the technology catches up and we can we can scale it we can bring it into more people's homes I, I guess we know the research I'm not arguing against further research into the area I I rarely do, but we're coming off a, a period in time like during the Obama administration when there were stories about how big of the backlog in veterans administration there was so much so there was so much paperwork that it was literally bending the floor that the, it was so filled with paperwork. And in a time when we have that kind of backlog of of cases, is this kind of technology going to be any sort of panacea? You know, I, I I see where you're coming from, and I think yes, if you are someone who's funding the military or funding the the VA, uh, that's you know it's much easier to just give soldiers a pill uh, that will solve their problems rather than this kind of an intervention. But frankly, I think this kind of an intervention has a lot more you know, legs on it in the sense that you can create lasting change. Like, for example, you know, there there are two ways that you can treat depression. There are more than two ways, but there are two two popular ways to treat depression for people who are mild to moderately depressed. You can take a pill, you can take an antidepressant, uh, but there's also good evidence that cognitive behavioral therapy is just as, if not more effective for people with mild to moderate depression. Um, But, you know, it requires more resources, it requires more time, but ultimately it has a longer lasting change. Once you stop taking the antidepressants, you know, that, that mechanism doesn't necessarily continue working. But the skills that you learn in cognitive behavioral therapy, you can use later on, even when you're not in therapy. And I think that probably points to the big lesson of all of this is that there's not going to be an easy fix here. There's not going to be like VR is not going to be a silver bullet that takes care of this problem for us, that there's a lot of hard work ahead and it's going to take decades. uh, Well, the easy fix is world peace and not sending anybody into war. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I wish that was as uh, easy as you made it sound. I know. Uh, me too. But of course, uh, it's not just veterans who suffer from PTSD. There are a lot of people who go through traumatic experiences that could benefit from this research and from the findings herein. So there we go. All right. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds and for supporting us through all of these years, um, these last five years that we've spent with uh, Mother Jones under the auspices of the Climate Desk, and now as we branch out on our own. 
Um, we'd like to thank our sp- supporters on Patreon specifically, especially David Noel, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Awald, Kyle Raihala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, Sean Johnson, and Nick Cadillac. Thank you for sticking by us. You can visit our website at inquiring.show, which we are continuing to update, and we're going to be adding more links and more more things like um, the books that we talk about and, and ways in which you can find them. Um, you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. Look for more content there as well. And you can find us on Twitter at inquiringshow uh, on Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by our wonderful editor, Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer, Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis, and you can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari, at Science Quiche. See you next week. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back. And the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.